Welcome to Sex Ed Rewind, reflections on how we learn about sex. Hey there, before we dive in, I wanted to give a content warning. We discuss rape briefly about halfway through the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. My name is Caro, your host, and I'm so excited to be welcoming my next guest today, um, a friend, former peer, former colleague of mine, Kamra Sadia Hakim. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you a little bit about them now. Kamra Sadia Hakim, they, them, the founder of Activation Residency, is a 28-year-old occupied Munsi Lenape territory-based futurity artist using their Black trans body as a portal to the futures needed now. Kamra is an entrepreneur, musician, performing artist, and curator devoted to the power of imagination and love as the answer. Kamra, welcome to the show. Carol, thank you so much for having me. That was an incredible introduction. I like am smiling from cheek to cheek. <laughs> I w- I'm honored to read those words. I feel like it's top five intros I've ever read. So it's pretty oh, powerful. Okay. How are you doing today? You feeling good? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling relaxed. I have my water. I'm ready to dive in. Oh my God, let's hydrate forever. Okay. (laughs) So um, we like to start our show kind of giving the listeners an opportunity to see what a young camera was like. So we kind of want to go back and think about those early years, those transformative years. um, And we like to set the scene. So can you share with us when you were in high school, what was your favorite band, your favorite fashion trend and your favorite slang word? Oh, wow. So my favorite band slash musician was Nelly Furtado. Definitely melancholy vibes. My favorite fashion trend was Vans sneakers. I think Mm. I had like 10 pair. (laughs) And um, my favorite slang word was scallywag. Mm. Oh my God. I don't even, I've I've never heard that it considered a slang word before. I love it. My friends and I were so kooky and fun and we were all on the performance dance team and just had such incredible insular language for each other. And we would just call each other scallywags and it was such a vibe. I mean, that's like (laughs) pirate lingo, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. I love that. And I do, I think it's also pretty noteworthy that both your band and your fashion trend are still cool today. So I think you might've been way ahead of the curb. I think so. I definitely have people on this show that share their fashion trend and it's like no longer, no longer. That doesn't hold up. You know what I mean? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Vans hold up. So that's the good news. I think they will for generations. Agreed. Agreed. They're classic. (laughs) Okay, cool. So now we can picture a young camera in Vans listening to Nelly talking pirate talk. Um, (laughs) Talk to me about the school that you went to. Where was it? What decade did you attend school? And talk to us a little bit about it. Like, was it a public, private, religious? Walk us through that aspect. I got really lucky in terms of my high school. I went to Raymond S. Cullis High School in Glendale, Arizona. It was a public high school. And it was stellar. I mean, it was clean. The staff was really friendly. Um, The staff was also local. So I got to experience being around black and brown people. Um, The security guards were even really friendly and sometimes felt like aunts and uncles. 
all of my teachers were so progressive and it was the first it was my first introduction to meeting young queer gay um, folks and it felt so natural for folks to be out to show all of the colors of themselves and not be judged for it I didn't experience any homophobia at my high school and it was also a place in which my leadership was not only welcomed but encouraged and amplified hmm. so every year that I was there I applied to be president and I won <laughs> so it was Hell like yeah. year, sophomore year and then I was student body president my junior year and senior year. They were just like, well, they're doing a great job. So I don't really think that they should move out of this position. Just let it run. Just keep excelling. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it was an atmosphere where I could be a popular kid, but I could also be a nerdy, smart kid. And there, you know, I didn't experience the same kind of bullying that I experienced in say, you know, um, middle school or like, early education. And I think my high school experience really shaped me in showing me that my capacity for leadership was real. And that even as a Black queer kid, I could make change in my community. And that was really powerful. I remember my senior year winning best personality, best laugh, most likely to be successful. And I'm just like, guys, there are other students at this school. Like, <laughs> Please stop, everyone. Go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> Um, and it was right across the street from my house. School was really a home for me. Can you tell us where this utopian high school was in the country? <laughs> yes, um, Glendale, Arizona. Okay, very cool. Very interesting. And it, did you say that it was public school or private? School. Public school. Oh, amazing. I know. I got really lucky. Yeah. Wow. I love, I love to start off on this foot because I, you know, wherever it takes us, I feel like a lot of folks don't um, have that experience. So it's great oh. that you felt that way about your experience. Like what a fantastic place to start. Yeah. So now that we kind of are familiar with the type of school that you went to and who you were a little bit um, when you were there, let's definitely start talking about our sex education experience. So did you receive any type of sex education when you were there? And if so, can you tell us about it? I received zero sex education between the ages of 13 and 18. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was 13 years old, my dad tried to bring sex up to me because he saw that I was watching porn on my computer and I fully rejected him. I was like, I'm not having this conversation with you. Like you're making me very uncomfortable. And his framework for discussion was what you see on porn is animalistic. It's not how real humans have sex. And that already didn't click for me, even though I wasn't having sexual experiences until I was 18, 19 and had already graduated high school. So the lack of sex education, I think, impacted my ability to have strong, intimate connections um, and I think that it also put me in a position to have to lean heavily on my peers and pornography and things I saw on the internet to sort of shape my understanding of what it is to be a sexual being. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting how even a school that has so many wonderful qualities and really allowed you to grow and thrive in so many ways was still somehow completely devoid of this really, really important aspect of education. They had one curricular and it was like a baby making class where you would like take home a fake baby, but oh, it was, no. like, <laughs> I was like, how is this teaching me about mm -mm. sex? Like, Surely so it's not. 
<laughs> oh, that's awful. Oh god. So it was lacking in that area. Okay, so you, that was that's bad news for sure. Yeah. So you you mentioned um, leaning more on your peers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was your journey like um, learning about sex through your peers? I really would I would listen to their stories. I would ask them what it was like to date people, to kiss people. I remember I was dared to kiss a boy. Um, during my eighth grade graduation and it was like so nerve-wracking and I was like oh my god this is so uh I don't know what to do but I did it and I was like oh this this actually feels a lot more natural than I thought it would Mm -hmm. um so I would listen to my peers experiences and then once I became a senior in high school I start to warm up to the idea of actually like engaging in sexual activities with other people um And that was really exciting for me because I think it gave me a lot of agency and placing my body in sexual experiences in places that were meant for me. I remember one instance in particular, I think it was my senior year of high school and I was hooking up with this dude and he was kissing my chest and and making out with it. And then the next day I had bruises and I was so proud of these bruises because I was like, oh, wow, like (laughs) this is my body. And like I had an experience and like now I, I have marks to like show that experience for myself. And so, um yeah, just being explorative and and not judging myself for being a sexual being and allowing those um, experiences to kind of naturally transform and open me up. And I think on the one hand, it's really amazing that I was able to have enough trust in myself to share those intimate experiences with other people. But on the other hand, I do think that there was a lot of harm caused to me Um, because I wasn't given the education that I needed around consent. So like, if I was in a situation where I was too intoxicated, or I wasn't uncomfortable, I was uncomfortable, it was hard to sort of speak up about that, because the the language around consent and boundaries was lacking. Yeah, and I think we forget that in many ways, sex is is like any other endeavor for a young person. It's like, would we send a young person out to climb a mountain without giving them any tools? Like, yeah, exploring is great. And that's a wonderful way to learn, but they would hurt themselves. And sex is no different. It's like, of course we learn through exploration, but you need to give people the ABCs before they can start, you know, doing SAT words. Absolutely. And I also think that there's this silent phenomenon of trying to protect um, AFAB people by not exposing them to sex when really that harms them because you're blocking them from information. And based on the experience of navigating sex like parallel to my family, I honestly feel that the world is afraid to visualize, conceptualize, and give AFAB people the space to be sexual beings. It's almost like the language that I've even heard my dad use around women and sex makes me feel like my father, the person that helped bring me into the world, hates women as sexual beings. And I think that when I was identifying as a cis woman, I felt that and it was really scary for me. And so I do feel really lucky now in my late adulthood to have come into that education um, because it really has just transformed my life entirely. Yeah. And for our listeners that might not know, AFAB stands for Assigned Female at Birth. What I love about what you said, Camera, is, you know, even though you didn't get a formal sex education, you still 
received messaging about sex and it was negative towards mm-hmm. AFAB people, towards cis women, right? And I did a lot of research in graduate school where we went together um, about the representation of AFAB folks in sex education materials. And it was always, um, you know, boys as the aggressor, girls as the pursued, girls are taught how to say no, when to say no, girls are taught that their bodies are sacred and boys are taught the exact opposite. Boys are taught how to control their impulses. And of course, this is all very binary, which is a problem in and of itself. Um, And then, you know, within that problem of the binary, we are just hammering in these stereotypes that you were even able to pick up on without any real concrete sex education. And I think that really says a lot about how potent they are in our culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm even coming back to some, you know, not so savory moments around sex where one time I was at a party and I got too inebriated. So I laid down on my friend's bed and a friend of mine, like a legitimate friend that I went to high school with and learned from came into the room and like started like massaging my leg and like trying to cozy up to me in a sexual way when it was clear that I literally didn't have the capacity to be sexual. Um, And that's really frightening because from that angle, it makes me feel like AFAB people are just seen as like a hole that people can put their genitals in, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it makes me feel like my pleasure experience is like void of being recognized it's like even if i'm not feeling pleasured that my body is still available and that's something that you know really frightens me about not not only just rape culture but like sex culture in general yeah i think that's such a solid point and again even in um sex education that is there pleasure is so rarely spoken about and when it is it's so deeply gendered you know we in the dominant culture here in america oftentimes think of sex as penis and vagina and it ends when the penis holder ejaculates right that's kind of really how we understand sex in the dominant culture and not only does that erase everybody outside of the binary but it also completely erases as you're talking about um afab folks or femme folks um being able to ask for deserve want feel any type of pleasure absolutely absolutely and i think that sex as pleasure as part of the conversation of sex education makes sex a more generative and expansive activity for everyone and even just reflecting on that i feel like some of my most transformative healing earth shattering sex have been penetration free have been clothes on, you know? And so even those experiences don't get the reverence of like the juiciness that they can provide in terms of pleasure. Absolutely. And we have such a narrow definition or understanding of what sex is. And even in um, teaching about that, you know, however problematic it is, it is often taught as the only way to engage in sexual activity. And kind of to your point, we are doing a disservice to young people, to future adults, by telling them that this is the one way to engage in sex. Um, There's not always pleasure. It's very transactional, particularly for the AFAB person, right? And we are just, you know, sending these really, really problematic and um, clear ideas about what sex is through sex education in this country. Absolutely. Love where this is going already. So you alluded a little bit to um, kind of shutting down a conversation with your dad because you were like, this is not happening now or never. (laughs) 
So can you talk a little bit about what you learned from your family about sex? My family taught me, my parents particularly taught me that sex is bad, that you should only have sex if you plan on getting pregnant, that you should only have sex with people who you're in spousal relationships with. And the second interaction, like the second big interaction that I had with my parents around sex was a day or two before I was going to get on a plane to fly to Dubai to study abroad for four months. And I like a few months before that I had started hooking up with this guy and I had my sexual debut with this person. Um, It was fully on my terms. Like I reached out to him and was just like, Hey, like, I think I'm ready to have sex. Like, let's do this. And of course he was really excited and we met in this like open field. It was a full moon and we were laying down and then he like slowly was going to start to penetrate me. And then I like expressed discomfort. So we like switched positions and then he like fully penetrated me and it was just such beautiful, amazing pleasure. And I was recounting this narrative to a friend via text and my parents hacked my computer and looked at my text messages and I come home and my mom's like, is there something you need to tell me? And of course, like as a 21 year old consenting adult, I was like, no, like, I don't know. It's a hard no. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing new to share. (laughs) I was like, um, no, I don't think so. And then she started to interrogate me. And after I didn't open up, she was like, I, you know, she disclosed to me what her and my father did and was just like, did he pressure you? Like, why did you do this? And just started to like escalate, escalate, escalate until she called me a whore and kicked me out. Now that as an adult who is like in therapy and has access to healing, like I know my mom um, is a CSA survivor. So that is where that came from. And now that I can place that, that feels a lot more easy to hold. Whereas in the moment I was like, wow, like my own mom is like shaming me for literally having sex. Like I don't understand. Um, The same thing happened when I came out to my parents that I contracted HPV. They were like, you know, that only happens from having sex. Right. And it's just like, I'm sorry that y'all are so hurt about sex, but like, I absolutely refuse to adopt or inherit whatever like shame and discomfort you have around it because it just it doesn't exist in my body like that yeah and you know you are such a strong and confident and powerful person and I think of the folks that went through similar experiences to you that didn't have that strength and weren't able to kind of shut out that messaging. And that's so many people in this country, you know, not everyone has the power that you have, which is so admirable and respectable. So hard-headed. <laughs> uh, but like for you to come out of that with your own feelings about sex intact is I think really rare and special. Um, and I just think about all of the folks that had similar experiences, worse experiences that yeah. internalized all that. And, you know, if that's the messaging we're getting at home and we're not getting anything at school, then yeah. that's the messaging we're getting, period, you know? Yeah. But if there's some narrative at school that's fighting that, it gives young people an outlet to say like, okay, well, maybe this isn't the only way. But without that, you know, it's kind of remarkable that you were able to react the way you did. Thank you for saying that. And I will say that if I had been supported educationally early on, I do feel like I would have 
more sustained, fulfilling, intimate, romantic relationships. I also feel like I would be deeper into my kink journey. I feel like that's something that I'm still trying to grasp and I'm still sort of experiencing this kink awakening in small ways, but ways that still feel fulfilling for me, but also ways that have been repressed because of all the trauma that was passed down um, generationally. It just speaks to the lasting impacts that a lack of sex education or a fraught sex education can have on, again, young people, our future adults, you know, and I think we have to remember that when we're having these conversations. Exactly. (laughs) So thank you for sharing that. You talked also about watching porn and that's kind of like how the dialogue started with your dad. Do you feel like porn was a significant source of sex ed for you as a young person? I do. I feel like it gave me examples of sexual expression. It allowed me to visualize, sensationalize, and also like physically feel feminine AFAB people as sexual beings. I don't need it anymore to help complement my sexual experiences, but I definitely feel like it contributed to my education in a way that gave me that confidence that you were speaking of. I don't think I would have necessarily pursued sex and have been open about my own sexual journey in the ways that I was had I not had access to the internet. Mm -hmm. And do you remember, like, how did you find porn? Because I I think now uh, on the young people today and just it was different. You know, we're very close in age. I think we we were in high school in like the mid-aughts-ish. Um, and Google was like there, but it wasn't like something that everyone knew how to – like I'm curious to know how you, how you um, accessed porn and, and what that looked like a little bit. So my dad is a computer engineer, so I've had internet my whole life. And I remember the early – earlier years, I think it was like 13, 14 is when I got exposed to porn. And I had two friends um, who were also black femmes who were maybe like three or four years older than me. So they had a little bit more exposure and sometimes they would come to my house for sleepovers. And it started off as us like going into chat rooms together and having like sexy talk with like random people on the internet. And then as time progressed and we got more comfortable, they started showing me like videos and images and and we would consume that together. And so it was, again, my peers. (laughs) I really relied heavily on my peers to provide me with access to sexual material in a way that would honestly reduce harm. It felt like harm. It felt like sex education, harm reduction version. (laughs) Yes. I mean, we all need some more of that. Let's be real. It's like, I'm not going to get it anywhere else. So I'm glad I'm at least getting it here. And do you feel like, I mean, you speak so fondly of them and that time. Were there any moments that you can recall where you got some like real bad advice or like some things that just went awry? Because young people were all navigating it together. And a lot of times information that young people share is incorrect or unhealthy or like, did you do you only have positive memories of that time and those sharings? Um, not not quite. I was trigger warning. I was raped once when I was 19 by a friend and I was intoxicated at their apartment. And it was actually two people in one night tried to non-consensually force themselves onto me. And I was really intoxicated. We were playing spin the bottle and we, I kept landing on the same person. And I remember 
one of the guys saying like, if, if I land on you again, we're, I'm going to like take you into the room and other things are going to happen. And so there have definitely been some like very violent, very triggering experiences. And I think that for me in those moments, when I reflect back and try to heal those, those times, I just think about how I wish I would have had more capacity to protect myself and say no. Um, and then also to having so much alcohol in my system and being influenced by that made it really difficult to sort of speak in a way that honored my values and my integrity. And so I think that like alcohol consumption and drug consumption mi mixed with sexual experiences and then not having people around who were just like, actually, that's not cool. We're not going to let you do that. You know, like having people advocate for me when I'm not coherent or not in a space to advocate for myself. And those are the moments where I think my, my peers failed me. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's not an easy thing to revisit. And I think what is so interesting about the way you kind of talked about that experience is that you experienced it. So you reflect on how you wish you had been, you know, better prepared or better able to articulate or to protect yourself. And that's obviously something that is missing in our sex ed is, is self-empowerment and that vocabulary. But how about the people that perpetrated that violent act, right? Like they needed education. They needed consent education. They needed to learn about what no means. They needed to learn to read the signs of someone who's not interested. You know, I just think the lack of education created that scenario. You know what I mean? And, and the fault is in those individuals 100%. Um, but we continue to fail people when we don't give them the information and, and there are victims and there are perpetrators and, and everybody loses in that situation. Absolutely. And I think it also too, like parallel to the lack of education is the relentless culture of abuse <laughs> and violence against AFAB people. I remember the last guy before he left the room, he said, and I quote, don't tell anyone about this. So he knew that he had harmed me and done something wrong um, and had asked me to be silent in, in his, his violence with him and be complacent. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, thank you for sharing. I know that's, um, that's not always easy to revisit. Um, and I'm thank sure letting me be vulnerable about the whole scope of the experience. Um, Cause I know that like, it can be touchy, you know, to talk about these things, but I have like a great support system and like my therapist has been really great in helping me process these things. And I've done like past life progression work on that. So it's been easier to talk about and share. And I think it's important to let everybody know my story because for so long I didn't call it what it was. Like I just pretended that it didn't happen. And as a sexually like liberated being, I think it's important to know for people to know that like even in my confidence, like my sexual confidence, like I also have experienced harm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it is such a complicated journey. I mean, in so many ways, it's beautiful and pleasurable and amazing, but um, there's baggage. You know, everybody that was raised in this country, regardless of the decade, has a lot of baggage across the board. Um, obviously, the lens of this podcast is sex education, but I firmly believe sex education permeates everywhere. You know what I mean? When you have age appropriate consent sex education, that starts when kids can walk and talk, you know, and, and if we had education like that in this country, we would, we would stand such a better shot at combating the culture that you talked about, the really violently pervasive culture. And I keep going back to like, 
you know, the culture is in place. And when you have nothing introducing something to fight against that culture, you're just going to keep, you're just going to keep going along with it because there's Mm -hmm. nothing there that's um, telling you that there's another way and how simple it would be to just add sex education to, to be that other path. It's such a simple and viable solution. And I think the folks like, you know, the black and brown, queer and trans folks um, who, you know, maybe come out later in life because it wasn't safe to come out earlier. Like, we're the folks who need that education the most, I feel like. Of course. I mean, the most marginalized folks are marginalized um, even if we don't look at their queer identities, right, because of their skin color, um, because of the intergenerational traumas that they've experienced. And, you know, sex ed is is right there with anti-racism work, with homophobia work, all of that stuff. It's, I feel like it's often left out of that conversation, honestly. Yeah, I would agree with that. So we've touched on this a little bit, but I would love to um, touch on it more explicitly. Can you talk to us about your intersecting identities? Um, and then we can talk a little bit about, you know, if they were represented and how and things like that. Absolutely. So my intersecting identities that I feel are most felt by me in my experience are the first being that I'm a Black American. I don't feel like I came out as Black (laughs) until I was 21 years old, honestly. Mm -hmm. I remember taking a course called Social Transformation in college and hearing the phrase white supremacy for the first time and learning about systemic oppression. And when I tell you that my brain was fully shattered, like fully, I was like, So now I have a lexicon for the life I've been living for the past 21 years. Like just the time. Someone else hearing this. Like (laughs) for the people in the back, let's turn it up. (laughs) It was so crazy. I was like, whoa, systemic racism. What is going on? It was like I was writing the best papers I had ever (laughs) written in my life. I was like, this is my lived experience. Um I just came out as transgender this past year. And before that, I was referring to myself as genderqueer, non-binary. I no longer use those terms because I feel that non-binary still centers the binary. And I'm really trying to be a lot more gender expansive. Um, And for a while, I was like a she-they person, but now I'm like strictly they-them. Um, I also identify as neuroemergent instead of neurodivergent because I realized that there are some things in my past that have shaped the way that I process information and think and move through the world, as well as like my compounding depression and anxiety and um, inherited mental illness from my father that I navigate. And I also think all of those things um, in the world and constructs that we live in are considered disabilities, but I consider them um, gifts. And I feel like they have contributed to the kind of person that I am and have amplified my experience of moving through the world rather than depleted them. So in my scope of identities, I would say those are the main three that I'm working with right now. I grew up Muslim and I still identify as a Muslim culturally, though I'm not practiced as my parents are. Mm -hmm. But I think that you know, having a a study of Arabic, being able to read the Quran and like connect with Islamic literature has been very important for me in my life. Yeah. 
Awesome. So thank you for explaining that in such depth and detail. Um, I really feel like the listeners are going to feel like they know you a lot better now, um, which is great to help contextualize all of this. So we talked, you mentioned a lot of identities just then, some that you had as a young person, some that you have now. Do you remember seeing all of those, some of those, none of those identities represented in the sex education material that you were consuming. So it wasn't in school, but it was in porn. It was through your friends. It was a little bit through your family. Like, did you feel those identities represented at all? Honestly, not until recently. I feel like most of the media that I've consumed in my life has been white. And it wasn't until within the past two years that I've started to like intentionally diversify my media intake, the literature that I'm reading, like making sure I'm prioritizing black and brown authors, the people that I'm dating, making sure that I'm prioritizing black trans people, neurodivergent people, um, sex workers even. And I think moving to New York and expanding my network has given me access to dating people with varied gender identities and have even allowed me to sort of like understand the spectrum of identities. Like, For example, I grew up poor, but this year my business did really well. So now I would consider myself someone who's well off, you know? And I think that my biggest heroes and saviors have been other disabled people, sex workers, and poor people who really have to bear the brunt of society's ills and create new pathways for us to move through the world in in ways that are as safe as they can be for the violences that we have to experience and overcome. So your the answer to your question is no, I haven't experienced that representation. However, I've been given the space to do so now and it feels really good. Yeah. I reflect often on um, what we rob from young queer people by not giving them proper sex education. And, you know, we really take away the the time for them as young people to explore their sexuality um, in the way that we kind of barely give to heterosexual young folks. And so oftentimes, like you said, people that hold queer identities have to push back that journey by like years to their mid twenties, mid thirties, sometimes not even until after that, because we don't create space for it when they are supposed to be having that those transformative journeys in their teens, you know, like right after puberty, let's get into it. No, you have to wait 10 years because people aren't talking about what it means to be queer. People aren't talking about queer sex. So you've got to figure out for yourself and then experiment later. And it's really, I mean, we're really robbing young queer youth of a sexual teenage experience. And their agency. Like, I feel like if I would have had adequate sex education and gender information and education, I would have come out as trans sooner. I could have used blockers, you know, so that my breasts wouldn't have grown to the size that they've grown to. But it's like now I have to like almost backpedal and do that work now, which is pretty traumatic, honestly. Yeah. And it comes at a price. I mean, obviously like a mental and emotional price, but a financial price as well. And it it costs for people to have this education taken away from them. And I also feel like that is not often talked about, like what it literally costs people in sometimes immeasurable ways, right? Like how do you measure mental and emotional health and trauma and things like that, but also the financial aspect of it. Absolutely. And also too, just like the conversation around how Healthcare is adjacent to um, sex education and 
I feel so privileged and blessed to have access to free healthcare that's covering my top surgery, covering my hormone treatment and all these things covers my therapy. It's like, in a lot of ways, I do feel like a special case because most of the narrative is folks don't have access to healthcare. Folks don't have access. Top surgery is fucking expensive, you know? And so I just like, yeah, it's like, it's also like, how is the lack of sex education not only damaging our health, but also like putting us in a position to not get access to the healthcare that we need to survive. Yeah, because did you even know what top surgery was as a 14 year old? I know I certainly didn't. And I mean, no, I didn't. you saying that yours is an interesting case is is an interesting thing. <laughs> not to use the word twice. But um, I'm really interested at the moment in like changing identities and like what coming into queerness a little bit later in life looks like. And I remember when I, I came to see your gallery opening some months back and one of the first things you said to me was I'm trans now. And I was just like, <laughs> I was like so thrilled because I was like, imagine a world where you just like see someone after a while yeah. and they would update you on their gender and sexuality. Like it's the weather outside. Like that's yeah. what we need. you know what I mean? It was like, Oh, I moved and I'm trans now. And I'm like, yes, tell me everything. Yeah. And I just think like, as you said, like we're both mid to late twenties at this point, And like, we're starting this now, like we're late and it's not our fault. Changing identities is normalized because bodies change and we learn at such different paces, especially when we're not given access to learning materials. Of course, your identity is going to change when you get access to those. And a lot of the dominant narrative around queerness mm -hmm. is like, people who have known their whole lives, they're closeted until the moment they come out and they're like, I've known this my whole life. Mm -hmm. But not every queer person's journey looks like that. Like some folks, it's a decade, you know, it's a decade after they hit puberty or it's many decades or it's like, oh, well, I thought I was trans, but now I actually prefer non-binary. Or like you said, you said you identify as non-binary and then you move to trans. And these are the dialogues we should be having in our heads when we're young people, when our hormones are raging and we're, and we have the space to explore and we don't have that, you know, in most places in the country right now. And so we really force folks to figure that out on their own and on a later timeline. Absolutely. And for me, when I look back at my baby self, I see myself as having had a somatic experience of a trans person. I didn't know what trans meant. I didn't know how to name it. But the kind of things I did was go outside by myself and ride my bike on like literal like dirt hills and like skin my knees and go out by the pond and catch frogs and climb trees. So I was a very like masculine kid, you know, I was always outside. I was always sweaty and dirty. And I think that that got beaten out of me. I think that femininity was forced onto me from like early, to, like once I started to reach puberty and I started to show signs of femaleness, I was like forced into femininity from like age 13 all the way up until about like 20 ish. And then once I started like taking queer theory and educating myself through the ivory tower, I started to be like, oh shit, like I've been brainwashed, honestly. Mm -hmm. I stopped shaving, I stopped using specific products. Um, I stopped getting my eyebrows waxed. Like I fully was like, this is not what I came here to do. And so I think a lot of us like 
not a lot of us, let me speak for myself. I think that I had the experience of like being in my truth in my early childhood and then being severely impacted on a gender from a gender perspective by society and societal norms and sort of having my true nature knocked out of me and having to do the work and releasing the trauma to get back to that. Yeah. And what I think you highlight so beautifully in that story is our, our also understanding that young people just have no idea what's going on in their bodies. Like we know better. Society knows better. This is just a phase like you're 10. What do you know? You know, kind of thing. And in reality, there's a lot of agency there and young people have a, have a good grasp on what's going on with their bodies. And yeah, it might be subject to change, but we should listen to that instinct and we should create the space for that instinct to grow and change if need be. But I just read about this book in the times. I don't want to plug it because I haven't read it yet, but it's called (laughs) tomboy. And the author talks about how we really glamorize tomboy tomboys, like again, pre puberty tomboys, because it's really fun and cute when girls act like boys. And I just want to cut in really quick and say, like, people called me a tomboy and I'm like, no, you guys just don't understand that I'm trans. Like, Mm -hmm. Wrong word, folks. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Language, man. The importance of language. Am I right? So yeah. And and the author talks about how it's cute also because we love men in the society. So like girls can act like boys in a way that boys can't act like girls as young folks. Oh my God. Say that. Yeah. So like Girls skinning knees and wearing pants is cute, but a boy in a dress and and nail polish is not cute, right? There's no word for that in the cultural lexicon because it's not allowed. So this idea that like the idea that once puberty hits, it's like, okay, can we all just start acting like the the gender we're supposed to be now? Like the the phase is over. It's not cute anymore. Right. Snap. Let's snap back into what's supposed to like, there's a, there's a time limit almost um, on that. Absolutely. Anyway, so we'll read the book. I don't know. I'll let you know if it's good. Don't I don't buy it yet. I haven't read it. Okay. Um, so okay, awesome. So great. We reflect a little bit on like feeling represented, um, or perhaps not feeling represented would be more accurate. Um, I'd love to bring the conversation a little more forward to today. And we definitely have talked, we've kind of bumped back and forth between then and now. But how do you think that your sex education journey has impacted your relationship to sex today? I think that my sex education journey has put me in a position to have to fight for the kind of sex I want to have. Like I actively have to be the sexual partner that I want in the world. I think also a lot of my gender identity process has been around being the person that I want to be. It's not just about like my gender presentation or how I want to look or how I want to appear in the world. It's about what kind of person do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind of person that understands consent as like an enthusiastic eye contact, yes, or a shoulder shrug? Because some people consider this consent when it's not, you know? It's like I have had to be on a long and grueling and also a journey that I welcome of forgetting everything that I've been taught about my positionality and consent and boundaries and interpersonal work and the ways in which I want to communicate with others and learn new skills around how to communicate. So for example, I inherited from my parents defensiveness, argumentativeness, being combative when it can really just be a a normal conversation. And it's taken lots of classes, lots of therapy to get to a place where 
I can be the kind of sexual partner that I want to be, where I can like check in multiple times, where I can attract people who can do the same thing and hold me and, you know, sort of like read my body language as consent instead of like always needing like a yes or no. And so I think that, you know, having a less than ideal sex education throughout my life has almost in a way put me in a position to have one of the best sex lives I could have ever imagined. And I think that is across the board for marginalization. It's like when you're always at the bottom of the barrel or when you're not getting your needs met, you have to go the extra mile to figure out how to get those needs met so you can survive and then not only survive, but also thrive. And so I think that in a lot of ways, like the lack has created abundance. And I feel like I've sort of flipped um, the lack on its head and given myself the opportunity to live in abundance through my gender identity, through the ways that I want to have sex and through the ways that I want to call in the kinds of romantic relation relationships and interpersonal relationships in general. Yeah. And I just think it's a testament to, you know, the strength that you have as a, as a person and like how committed you are to just like knowing yourself and like getting your needs met. And that's, that's pretty rare. So yeah. Well done, camera. Not <laughs> that you need me to tell you that. But. Okay, so last, I would love to wrap up with a big question. Knowing what you know now, which as we have learned in the last 45 minutes is so much more than we knew when we were young. Yeah. What do you wish that your sex education journey could have looked like? I wish my sex education journey could have been centered around knowing that there are options and choices. I felt like in my younger years when I started to have crushes and like feelings and butterflies came up, I always felt like things had to be a certain way where it wasn't right. And I think that learning that there are options and choices and variety and so many flavors, it would have just changed the game for me because I feel like in my 28 years of life, I'm still undoing like these very like rigid narratives and frameworks. Um, I wish it could have been interactive and hands-on. Like I wish I could have like held a dildo in a classroom. I wish it could have been shame and guilt-free and rooted in our capacity to like experience desire for and with each other. I think another thing that I've witnessed in myself and also in peers is like not wanting to claim desire because of how much shame is around sex, you know? And I wish that sexuality in general was experienced as like an open concept rather than like a private secret that nobody can know about. And I know that there's a future in which that kind of sexual education is possible um, because if I, if I ever bring a child into this world, you best believe like we will be talking about sex out the gate. Like I will, I refuse to... Mm -hmm let my child go through the world without the information that they need to successfully navigate. Like, honestly, I hate when I see those coming to age movies where like the eight year old is like, mommy, what's sex? And everyone's like, that you, that's for adults. It's like, th th I'm just, no, like mm -hmm. it's so toxic. Incorrect. <laughs> it is for you and to everyone. My, I literally, my first sexual experience was 10 years old. I remember it. And it was one of the most like vivid 
experience it. I'm like, am I ever going to get that wet again? You know, it was like, yeah. my body was like so juiced. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think that, you know, an ideal sex education can look like many things, but ultimately like I would want it to be informed. I would want there to be enthusiasm around it. I would want it to be specific um, and transparent and tangible. I would want it to consider all bodies, including disabled bodies um, and bodies that use mobility aids and different things to navigate sex. And I would also want it to feel creative. Like sex is a, is a creative experience. And I think we also don't give it that life that it can have. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, as you said, the crux of it is just like choice, like true choice, you know, not the illusion of choice or choosing between two shit things like true (laughs) choice is just so powerful and so absent. So absent, absent in sex education. And that is reverberated through literally everything in this world, you know, like man, woman, black, white. It's like, bro, be gone by be gone binary. I, I'm going to need you to write a book called be gone. Binary. <laughs> it's pretty catchy. The visual title this episode, be gone binary. It's pretty good. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, well, camera, this brings us, I think, to the end of our journey, but I want to give you an opportunity to let the folks know where they can follow along with you, um, where they can, we didn't really get to talk about activation, but I know that it's so important to you. It's your baby and um, it's such a wonderful, wonderful organization. So if you can drop your handles, your websites, the folks at home can, um, can do some research and invest and get involved. Absolutely. I first just want to thank you for being an incredible host and listening to my story and also holding space for someone like me to be transparent about their narrative and journey. I think that one of the biggest things for me and my moving through life has been having an opportunity to reflect. And even in this session with you, I feel like I reflected on some really, really big moments. And so thank you for that. I am the founder of Activation Residency. It's a Black trans-led residency experiment that I started in 2018. We do a variety of things. I won't get into all of them, Mm -hmm. but you can research them and find more information on activationresidency.com. And you can find us on Instagram at Activation Residency. And we'll for sure have all of that in show notes and the Instagram post. So people will find you if they are looking for sure. So thank you again so much, camera, for speaking with us today. Best of luck on your surgery in a couple of weeks. When this airs, <laughs> you will be top surgeried. It will be. Oh my gosh, tense. are you serious? Okay, that's so exciting. I can't wait. Thank you so much, Caro. You can find the show on Instagram at Sex Ed Rewind or online on my website at caroconfort.me. I drop new episodes to podcast platforms every Monday. The cover art and website are by Kelsey Reifler, and the podcast is produced and edited all by me. Bye.